In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. O sacred heart of Jesus, immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Pius X, St. Pius V, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. <clears throat> Last month we began talking about the uh, documents of Vatican II, and I mentioned that I was going to put... Uh, a certain uh, bishop of Vatican II, his name was Bishop uh, Basil Christopher Butler, and he was one of the so-called experts called to Vatican II, and he wrote most of the documents. He was a modernist, and this is his own summary of the documents of Vatican II. And for our purposes here, I'm keeping it deliberately very simple, just to get the gist of it. And what we have here is he presents, here's the past, and here's the future. So, uh, I also mentioned that, very important, the important thing to recall here is I told you that everything that has been going on in the new church, I'll call it, since the close of Vatican II, everything happening from Paul VI, John Paul II, uh, Benedict XVI, now Francis, everything they've done, everything they're doing, you can implicitly or explicitly find in Vatican II. It's there. And you're going to see some things. Some of these documents, because I'm going to finish this tonight, um, I'm not going to go into great depth into all of them. There's some points I'm going to make tonight on some of them. But that is the point to remember. Everything is in these documents, either implicitly or explicitly in some way. And that's why I say everything was from Vatican II. And you cannot, we cannot, we as, a, as priests of the Society and Congregation of St. Pius V, our attitude is not, well, let's try to make a deal with them and work side by side and try to bring them back in as if the new Mass and the true Mass can exist side by side in the same church. And their teaching and what we teach is the same thing. It's not. So, uh, with that said and done, um, I will begin, even though Father will be here shortly, I'm sure. This second document here is the Constitution on Divine Revelation. The Constitution on Divine Revelation was all about sacred scripture. And, for example, the past, this Bishop Butler writes, in the past, the catechisms generally taught that not all revealed truth was contained in Holy Scripture. Well, that is true. <laughs> A biblical theology was largely lacking in the church. The Bible was always a secondary role in the religious life of the faithful. Ecclesiastical authority restricted it. The biblical movement met with many difficulties. So he's saying that's what happened in the past. 
In the future, he says, sacred scripture is going to be the soul of theology. Remember what I told you in the modernism conferences? In the 1940s, those three Jesuit modernists came out and said, we want to go back to the very sources of, of revelation and base all theology on that and get rid of St. Thomas. This is what's happening at Vatican II. And uh, Bishop Butler says in here, and so, uh, among other things, he says that uh, all Catholics must diligently study the Bible. Uh, provisions must be made for translations and for cooperation with non-Catholic uh, scholars. And basically what they're saying here now is the Catholic Church suppressed the Bible. Catholics did not know the Bible. The Protestants knew the Bible. Now we have to give the Bible to the faithful so that they can take the Bible and they can enrich themselves with it. Uh, that, is, that is not true. The church never forbade the reading of sacred scripture. Pope Leo XIII himself gave an indulgence to, re to read sacred scripture. What the church forbade was private interpretation on the part of anyone for sacred scripture. You must uh, uh, interpret sacred scripture according to the mind and practice of the church as she always has done. Okay, speaking of televisions, we have the third document of Vatican II, the decree on the media of social communication. What would the Vatican, what would the church be deciding on the media here? If you read the summary there, uh, the past modern mass media were often viewed with distrust in ecclesiastical circles. They still are. Uh, they were often judged in an almost purely negative way and exclusively from the standpoint of morality. And the new thing here is going to be we're going to be using more press, film, radio, and television to be promoting the things of the faith. Well, you know what? Pope Pius XI and Pope Pius XII both put encyclical letters out on television, on uh, movies, motion pictures, uh, and yes, yes, the church very much judged the, the morality of these things. Uh, in and of themselves, these things are not intrinsically evil. Television, motion pictures, the radio. Pius XI dedicated the Vatican radio. Right? But the church was exercising caution in how these things were being used. Many people do not know that in 1925, Hollywood was putting out pornographic movies. 1925. And it was because of the bishops and what we called the Legion of Decency. The Catholics around the country rallied around their bishops and their pastors, and they put a stop to it. It was over. They, they, they actually put a stop to it for a brief time. So the church always, the church views media and these kinds of things with the idea that it can be used as instruments, as means to spread the faith and do good for souls, but the church must watch it so that it is not used for evil. 
And this document here basically distorts all of that and, and condemns the church's view of what the, media, what the view should be on the media. The fourth document is the dogmatic constitution of the church. You read what he says about the past there. Since the Reformation, that is the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the church had chiefly been viewed as a spiritual superstate, the Pope as its head, like an absolute monarch, and then in graduated order bishops and priests, ranged almost passively below them were the faithful. Its legal, unchangeable aspect was obvious in the sharp opposition against all that was not the church. And here triumphalism was mixed with clericalism. This document, and his comments here in the future, as you can see there, uh, is how we're going to break down this hierarchical structure in the church, that the Pope is an absolute monarch. And then you have the bishops, then you have the clergy, and then you have the faithful. This document, the point of it is, is to make the church a more of a democracy. That's the whole purpose of it. Now, I don't know if you remember, I may have mentioned it already in one of our talks, one of our questions we had it was not long after Francis was elected that he actually said he was going to, he wanted to change the constitution of the church. And that's right here in this document. First we thought, where is he getting this stuff? But it's implicitly right here. He said he wanted to make the church more of a democracy and have the people more involved in the running of the church. Uh, and I told you, it is a dogma of faith, divinely revealed and fallibly taught by the church, that Christ himself personally constituted the church, gave it its constitution. Peter was the head, and his successor in Rome is the head. The Pope is the head of the church. And under the Pope is the, are the bishops, and then the clergy, and then the faithful. You cannot make that a democracy unless you go against what Christ himself established. The fifth document is the decree on ecumenism. As he says in the, the past here, the prevalent attitude toward other Christians was hostile and purely defensive. Now, Remember, this is, these are his comments. It's his criticism of what the church did in the past. He says the object was to prove to them their deficiencies and errors. In other words, he's saying here that the prevalent attitude of the church towards other Christian religions was one of defensive and to prove to them that they're in error. In contrast, he said, the church tried to cover its own deficiencies. Meaning, try to cover her own mistakes, her own errors, he says. And you know, I, it reminded me when I read that. Do you remember uh, in March of 2000, John Paul II had the huge apology day where he apologized to all 
everyone and everything for something. He apologized to the Muslims. He apologized to the Jews. He apologized to the Greek Orthodox. The list goes on. So this Bishop Butler goes on to say there was little concern to understand the others, that is the other religions, and the common heritage was rarely mentioned. Other Christians were simply a danger to the Catholic faithful. Authorities regarded the developing ecumenical movement with reserve. Then he goes on to say, well, in the future, after Vatican II, uh, in the midst of that paragraph, he says, the others, that is, other religions, are going to be recognized as churches and church communities, and it is even admitted that the church can learn something from them. Now, John Paul II put out an encyclical letter called Ut Unum Sint, which means that they may be one. And his encyclical was on the ecumenical movement as was called for by Vatican II, this document. And he said the church will meet with other faiths to come together with them and a spirit of brotherhood to learn, to learn the truth. In the 1930s, Pius XI put out an encyclical letter called Mortalium Animos. That was his uh, uh, papal encyclical on ecumenism. And Pius XI said that the church does not meet with other religions as if she were going to learn with them. The church, he says, is willing to sit down with any religion in order to instruct them on what is the truth about Christ and salvation. So, when you think about uh, John Paul II especially, uh, what comes to my mind is the 1986 meeting at Assisi, where he invited every religion he could possibly invite to come there that day. And he gave them a recognition that they were all going to come together. And they were all going to pray to their own deities for world peace. That's not something he thought of. It's right here in Vatican II. That wasn't his own ideas. It's already laid here. The groundwork was laid at the council. The sixth document is the decree on the Eastern Catholic Churches. The Catholic Churches of the Eastern Rite, that is the Ukrainian Catholic, the Marianite Rite Catholic Church, the Malabar Catholic Church, the Chaldean Catholic Church. There are actually 17 Eastern Rites that are recognized by the 1918 Code of Canon Law as Catholic uh, churches in communion with Rome. So Bishop Butler says the Catholic churches of the Eastern Rite were considered primarily as relics of a bygone age. They were not recognized as genuine parts of the church and attempts were constantly made to Latinize them in their law, liturgy, and theological thinking. Thus they had become an obstacle rather than a bridge to reunification with the non- Catholic Eastern churches. Now that is simply not true. 
that the church wanted to continually Latinize them and get rid of all those Eastern rites that go back to the dawn of Christianity. And I know it's not true because the Catholic Church had part of the Redemptorist Order, part of the Franciscan Order, the poor Clares, she actually sent them over to be Eastern rites. There were certain convents, monasteries, and seminaries of these religious orders that became Eastern Rite to help build up the Eastern Rite churches. And for the future, he says, if you look what he says in the future here, it's not so much about dealing with the Catholic Eastern churches. It's dealing with the Orthodox. You heard of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, Those are all schismatic sects that broke off from the Catholic Church centuries ago. And in here, in the future, he says, the existence of the different parts of the church, all equal in standing, uh, is recognized and encouraged. And then if you read towards the end of this paragraph, the future, he says, Christians uh, may receive them in Orthodox churches when no Catholic priest is available, marriages before or an Orthodox priest are valid, joint use of the same church is permitted. Now, when he says Christians may receive them, he's referring to sacraments. What this means is, it's here in the groundwork of Vatican II, that Catholics can approach schismatic, non-Catholic bishops or priests for sacraments. Now, it is true that if a Catholic person, and this is one of those extraordinary cases, though, it is true if a Catholic were in danger of death and there was absolutely no Catholic priest for miles that could be reached, but there was a Greek Orthodox priest there. This is years ago now. That Greek Orthodox priest could be called, because the church has always recognized them as having valid holy orders. That Greek Orthodox priest could come and absolve him in danger of death only. But he could never, the Catholic could never, ever receive Holy Communion from that Greek Orthodox priest. And a Catholic priest could If he was a dying Orthodox person, who their Orthodox priest wasn't there, a Catholic priest is permitted in danger of death to give them conditional absolution. But the Catholic priest could never give a Greek Orthodox or a schismatic Holy Communion. Never. They are. They are. They can. Even the Catholic ones can. It's very different. I had a, I once anointed a Marianite rite Catholic priest on his, he was on his deathbed, and they couldn't get anyone to go and see him. He had 12 children. He had been married. He had been working in Lebanon for years, and he was very old. He was dying in Virginia. They couldn't find anyone to go see him. I went and gave him conditional sacraments. Now, in regard to Holy Communion, 
I want to explain why is that. Why the Greek Orthodox have always been recognized as having valid sacraments, but a Catholic could never receive Holy Communion from them, and a Catholic priest could never give a Greek Orthodox person Holy Communion under any circumstances, not even Holy Viaticum, ever. St. Thomas Aquinas gives us the reason why. St. Thomas says that the Eucharist is the sacrament of ecclesiastical unity. He actually says completely that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. He explains the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is present in the Holy Eucharist. The whole Christ is present. So he says it's the sacrament of the body of Christ. He says, but it is also the sacrament of ecclesiastical unity. And he says, this unity is brought about by many being one in Christ. What he means is, what unites all of us here in this ecclesiastical unity is we all receive the body and blood of Christ. That's our unity, is in the sacrament. And because of that, you cannot give Holy Communion to a non-Catholic. Ever. Under any sort of, and the church never did. Canon 844, the new code of canon law of John, the, John Paul II. What is found in this decree, canon 844 says, by canon law, Catholic priests may hear confessions of the Orthodox and Protestant faithful and even give them Holy Communion and the anointing of the sick. And they always put under various circumstances. The only condition they say is that that Protestant or Orthodox person has to believe in the real presence of Christ. But there is absolutely no provision for believing all the articles of faith. There is no provision for confession. What about mortal sin? Nothing. Canon A44 of the New Code then introduces this. I have talked to various people around the country, different parts of the country, who have told me, now of course this isn't like the greatest proof here, but still, whether it's in California or New York, or down even in Florida, people have told me when they go to funerals in the new church, and they've got all kinds of different people there, Protestants, so-called Catholics, etc., the priest has said, at the beginning of the funeral or during the holy at the part of holy communion he says whether you're catholic or not everyone's invited to partake in the supper of the lord everyone's invited to come up and some people have told me they've seen protestants going up there uh, whatever it doesn't matter in fact i was uh, doing a first friday uh, enthronement of the sacred heart in a particular home many years ago and this woman's mother, who was not traditional, I'll use that term, uh, came to dinner that night with her husband, and he was a Methodist. And she knew what kind of priest I was. She was extremely unfriendly to me. 
Uh, now, I'm not take, I wasn't taking anything personally from her, right? But she was just not friendly. I mean, she would look at me like, you know, I would say something to try to have a nice conversation. You know, when it's very quiet at the dinner table, no one's saying anything. And I would try to say something like, uh, uh, beautiful day we're having today. It was too cold. Okay. So I'm trying to do something to, you know, make everyone friendly. And then she finally, she said, you know what? She said, I just can't take this anymore. She said, the very, she said, what you do, the kind of priest you are, puts a judgment on my soul and on my husband. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and then she told me, my husband, Bob, he's a Methodist. He said that our priest gives him Holy Communion every Sunday and says he doesn't have to convert because God knows his heart. He said that you wouldn't give him Holy Communion, would you? I said, absolutely not. See, I knew you were that kind of a priest, cold and uncharitable, unfriendly, and this and that. I'm thinking, unfriendly. (laughs) So needless to say, the daughter said, now, Mom, please. And she said, don't start. I'm going to finish this right now. So, okay. I left uh, like, oh, my goodness, right? I tried to do some good for her, but it, she was very angry when the dinner started. But it's Holy Communion. It's here. And they talk about, you know, these qualifications. they got to at least believe. It's not, in the practical order, that never took effect. They don't care. They just don't care. Then we have the seventh decree in the pastoral office of bishops. And I'm really not going to go into that one um, uh, here. I will go into this here. Uh, Document 8, the Declaration on Non-Christian Religions. And I really had to uh, restrain myself when I read this whole first paragraph on the past. Let's read this. Catholic missions formerly took an almost purely negative stand against the world religions, whatever that means. Right? They, were own, they were seen only from the viewpoint of conversion. Well, isn't that what it's supposed to be? <laughs> right? The stand was even stronger in the case of the Muslims, who were considered militant enemies of the church. <laughs> Well, isn't that what happened for about a thousand years? Still. Yeah. <laughs> and the Jews, who were considered an obdurate people. The Catholic attitude was permeated by, here's why this really upset me. The Catholic attitude was permeated by an anti-Semitic strain without which there might have been no persecution of the Jews by the Nazis. See why I had to calm down, Bishop Sante, right? I have this very beautiful book called Martin Luther, Hitler's Spiritual Ancestor. And I want to read to you a few choice passages that Martin Luther recorded. Um... And what was his attitude towards the Jews? Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation. Here's what he said. Uh, These were seven laws he coined. 
of what the laws for the, would be for the Jews in Germany. One, set fire to their synagogues and schools. And what will not burn, heap earth over it, so that no man may see a stone or relic of them forever. Two, pull down and destroy their houses, since they perpetrate the same nefarious things in them as in their schools. Pack them all under one roof or stable like the gypsies. Right? Take all the Jews from their homes and pack them in one place. Three, deprive them of all their prayer books. Four, forbid their rabbis henceforth to teach. Five, deprive them of the right to move about the country. Six, forbid them the business of usury and take from them all their belongings. Seven, hand the strong young Jews of both genders, flail, axe, mattock, spade, distaff, and spindle, and make them work and sweat in their brow for their daily bread, but confiscate their property and drive them out of the country. Luther then went on to say in other parts of his writings, the Jews deserve to be hanged on gallows seven times higher than an ordinary thief. There's a lot more in the book. Quotes from Martin Luther in his works on how he felt about the Jews. Did anybody here even know that Martin Luther hated the Jews? Okay. <laughs> right? You know why the rest of you didn't know? Because nobody talks about it. You never hear about this. What do we usually hear about? Pius XII did nothing to help the Jews during World War II. We hear that lie over and over. Right? And remember I told you Hitler's right-hand man, Heinrich Himmler, once said, if we tell a lie long enough, they'll believe it. And that is the truth about a lie. <laughs> So they say here might not have been a persecution of the Jews by the Nazis if the church had not had such an attitude. That's completely, that is, a, that is a calumny. Objectively speaking, a mortal sin of calumny, what they said there. If Hitler had anything with the Jews, perhaps it was because of Martin Luther. But I don't know if there's a direct trace. Uh, so in the future, it's going to be a whole different thing. And especially with the Jews, they're going to be seen as God's chosen people. They're going to be respected. They're going to be practically worshipped by the church. And furthermore, they're going to be left alone. That is implicit in the document here in Vatican II. We're not going to try to convert them. We're not going to go after them. Now, I have an article here from the New York Times, December 10th, 2015. Vatican says Catholics should not try to convert the Jews. I have an article here, same topic. This is from the Times of Israel. 
Vatican calls on Catholics to stop trying to convert Jews. Picture of Francis there praying at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I just want to read you an excerpt here. The belief that the only way to salvation is through belief in Jesus Christ is a fundamental tenet of every brand of Christianity. But it must be said, it is blamed for creating an evangelical tendency responsible for some of the darkest periods in the history of religion. Notably, the church's anti-Muslim crusades of the Middle Ages and the centuries of anti-Semitism fostered by the Catholic Church. Right? So you know what he's saying there? That salvation is only from Christ has created problems. Right? The article goes on to say, the latest report of the Vatican reiterates that it is only thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection that all people have the chance of salvation. Remember, that's how modernists write. Right? They're very ambiguous and they'll sprinkle a speck of truth in there, a half-truth, a broken truth. So, uh, that it is only thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection that all people have the chance of salvation. But accepts, that is, but accepts that Jews can benefit from this without believing in Christ. Jews can benefit. This is what Vatican... They're quoting current Vatican theologians that the Jews can benefit from the death of Christ, but they don't have to believe in him. One of the Vatican theologians says, how the Jews can be saved while not believing in Christ is an unfathomable mystery of the salvific plan of God. In other words, we don't know all we know is they are, but we don't know how this can be. I forgot to bring my New Testament, but I refer to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, a very familiar passage when St. Peter and the Apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin, not just a group of Jewish people on the streets in Jerusalem someday. They're standing before the, the high priest of Israel, the leader of, of Israel, the, uh, the religion and political affairs and the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, and St. Peter says to them, there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Christ. And Peter tells them, everyone, in so many words, must embrace Christ. Must believe in him, must obey him, must become a member of Christ's church. And yet they don't know. Right? If you wanted, if you needed a proof that we're in different religions than they are, this is a big one. Because they are saying officially that people can be saved without believing in Christ. People who know it can be saved. We are not in the same religion with them. Francis didn't make that up. It's in this Vatican II document. The seeds for it are right there. Um, okay. Declaration on Religious Liberty. Here, 
was Basically, what he says here in the past, religious liberty liberty as a human right was considered a product of relativistic thinking and therefore unacceptable. Only truth could have rights. Well, religious tolerance was permissible as a lesser evil, but as far as possible, any propagation of error was to be suppressed. Wherever Catholics were in the minority, they worked for religious liberty. Where they constituted a majority, they claimed liberty for the Catholic religion alone. Well, simply not true on this. And the whole point of it here is now the church is going to recognize the rights of all these other religions to exist. They have a right before God to profess their error. And it's not a question of a right that the church did not um, the church did not uh, persecute false religions. The church, the attitude of the church was there was a toleration, but not a religious toleration. We call it a civil toleration where that the, these false religions were there. She did not order a massacre of these people. But there was no religious toleration. She would not tolerate error. As if one had a right to believe error. And what this document here is ultimately saying is the church is going to respect their right to believe in error. See, uh, in 1648, the year 1648, a treaty was signed. It was called the Treaty of Westphalia. And what it did, it put an end to all the bloody and religious, religious bloody wars that were going on in Europe since the time of Martin Luther. Kind of put a stop to it. That there was going to be a civil toleration. That is, there weren't going to be uh, wars over this, uh, where bloodshed was constantly, blood was constantly being shed because of it. Now, that didn't mean the church didn't tell them they were wrong and would try to convert them. Right? So that's why I say there's a distinction between religious and civil toleration. Right? Even though I know some people who grew up in Ireland and they'd walk by the Protestant church and they would spit on the cornerstone. <laughs> okay, document 10, the decree on the lay apostolate. Uh, this document here uh, basically goes into uh, giving the lay people a greater role in the church and equating them to the clergy, uh, lowering the power of the pastor and raising up the people. And that's why in the future it says here the lay person is recognized as a fully responsible member of the people of God. He has a much larger share of self-determination in the modern world. He shares in the universal priesthood and the gifts of the Holy Spirit who works where he pleases. And um, you want to know what is the practical consequences of this document. What happened in the wake of Vatican II? All of a sudden, we had lay people being lectors, going up and reading lessons. 
And then we had Eucharistic ministers begin. And then it went even further. There were now going to be parish councils in the local churches. Every parish church was encouraged to have a council of lay people who worked with the pastor and advised him. And they, even in some places today, they exercise an authority. And I'm going to share with you a personal story. My father, God rest his soul now, he, and my mother started looking in 1970 for the Catholic Church. She left the local church around 1970. My father was not with her. He never bothered her. But he never went with us. We would all get in this Chevy Impala station wagon and drive somewhere. Right? 30 years later, finally, he leaves the local parish. Here's what happened. He came home one Sunday. He'd go to the early mess there. He came home one Sunday. He said to my mom, there's an old Monsignor there now. Very old. And he got up there, and he's telling my mother, he said, if people don't stop committing mortal sin, they will go to hell. He said, you see, they still believe in hell. It's still the church, he said. He was so excited to be able to have one up on her. (laughs) Next week, goes there, Monsignor's not there. So he asked somebody. He didn't know many people there. He just usually went in and then he went out. He asked, what happened to the Monsignor? They said, oh, you didn't hear? The parish council did not like his sermon. They contacted the cardinal. They didn't even talk, you know, not the pastor. They contacted the cardinal and they said, we want him out. He was gone a matter of days. Because they didn't like his sermon. That's the power of the parish council. The seeds for such a thing are right here. They were lowering the clergy and raising up the laity as if they were equal here in the administration of the church. Vatican II encouraged parish councils. Protestant churches have parish councils. We live three doors down from a Dutch Reformed Protestant church. And they had a church and they had a house that belonged to the church. And there'd be a different minister. We knew that we used to play baseball in the yard. Uh, The minister tolerated us playing ball in the yard. Uh, The janitor of the church didn't, but the minister did. But they were always changing over. When we grew up, we learned that there was a parish, there was a, a group of people, a board, who owned the church and who would interview ministers. And if they liked what they said, they hired them. Gave them a salary in the house. They didn't like them, you didn't get the job. Didn't like what they preached, you didn't get the job. So that is kind of what has happened here in our in our local parishes since Vatican II. Decree eleven on priestly formation. Okay, basically, because we're getting kind of late here, it's talking about seminaries, seminary training, and how the seminary, the way priests were trained, 
up until Vatican II, it's outdated. We got to change this. Right? Uh, and what we're going to change here is uh, in the future, among things here, seminarians are going to be encouraged to be open and aware of problems of contemporary man, whatever that means. Right? Uh, there'll be more contact between seminarians and people in the world. Seminarians are going to have an opportunity for a personality development. Okay? They're going to get to know other ways of thought besides scholasticism. Now, make a long story short here, uh, what happened when they started changing all this around? You know what happened. Everything was lost. That priestly holiness, that priestly virtue, that decorum, it was gone. In fact, there were seminaries around the United States in the 1970s following this decree, as it were, promoted their seminarians while they were supposedly studying for the priesthood, they wanted them to go out and date young ladies and test their vocations. See if they really were meant to be priests. Right? I knew a priest in the Archdiocese of New York. Um, he was actually a Salesian priest, but he was up near New uh, Hyde Park, near the Poughkeepsie area. And uh, he said, he was studying in the seminary in the year 1970, and he said they were encouraged as seminarians to go swimming with the nuns from the local parish who taught at the local school. They were encouraged, not told, well, do whatever you want. They were encouraged to do this. He said they were also encouraged to speak out and believe what they wanted to believe about sacred scripture. They were encouraged to disagree with the professor and follow their own train of thought here. And if you've ever read the book, Goodbye, Good Men, <laughs> you ever heard of that book, what it talks about? And that book basically tells us what we're seeing right now. The seminaries in this country, and I dare say around most of Europe, and even in South America and Mexico, they are inundated and they are drowning in the sin of sodomy. It is characteristic of all those seminaries. And as I, I probably once said this before, it's, it's so terrible. It's so terrible that I know when we travel sometimes you wonder what people think about us. right? Because it is so characteristic. But that was not an accident. That was deliberate. They deliberately did that to destroy the priesthood and just bring it down. Because there's nothing lower than that. And they have been very successful. We have a decree here on contemporary renewal of religious life here. And all I want to say about this, when they're talking about they've got to do things differently now, religious orders, you're familiar, of course, with our Daughters of Mary, how they live a community life. Sisters live together. They follow a daily schedule that actually fosters their holiness and spiritual perfection and enables them to do the work for Christ in the church, 
for our schools, for our congregation, etc. The religious order. Um, our congregation, St. Pius V, we have superiors, we have daily life we live, we have constitutions, rules we follow. Here we have laid, they have laid out here a new way of doing things. And if you recall, many of you I'm sure recall, after Vatican II, the nuns left the convents. And they went and got apartments. Of course, their habits were shortened until they finally got rid of their habits. And they were walking around with purses, and they had makeup on, and they were having their hair done, and their nails done. And they destroyed their religious life. It was purposely done. I was on an airplane once. Some woman sat down next to me. She said, hi, Father. I said, hi, how are you doing? And uh, she said, I'm actually a, a religious sister, of uh, Sisters of St. Joseph, Father. And I said, I never would have known unless you told me. She said, I, I know, she said. But, you know, she said, well, I still wear my little gold cross here. I said, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, so does like half the high school students in the local public high school. They wear their gold cross. Right? Never would have known. So we started talking. We were, I think I was at St. Louis, and I was, we were flying to Chicago, and then I was on my way back to Roundtop. And by the time we landed in Chicago, she wanted to talk to me anymore. Because she was telling me all these things that are happening in her order. And I asked her a question, how many vocations do you have now? She says, well, last year we got one Vietnamese girl. Okay. I said, do you ever get any Americans? No. She said, we get Filipinos, Vietnamese, maybe uh, some from Mexico. I said, not like a Mexican-American living? No, no. We don't get vocations from here. I said, oh, okay. Okay. I said, uh, I told about the Daughters of Mary. Shame on me. I was kind of boasting. I said, we had, we had eight girls come last year, all local, 18. <laughs> she, really? The Vietnamese girl they had was 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I tried to tell her, I said, you know what? I said, I said, you know what happened? I said, you know why this is happening? I, tr I told her, it all goes back to Vatican II and everything that went on. I said, sister, please. She was celebrating her 50th year in the convent. It is not true that Pope Pius XII sent an instruction to the convents to modify their habits. I, I wasn't fully aware of that, but yeah. Uh, well, now, if you want an unfathomable mystery, that's it. Why he would do that. <laughs> right. I've never, I don't recall seeing a picture of them. But it's... Of course, I, I'm sure it isn't. <laughs> that I'm sure of, yes. But I, I can tell you, I just explained to this sister on the plane, oh, here's the problem, here's what happened, but she didn't want to hear it. She just didn't want to hear it. She just said to me, kind of, well, you know, Father, there were a lot of problems before Vatican II that had to be fixed. I said, really? Like the churches were, I got a little sarcastic, God forgive me. I said, like the churches were too full? <laughs> we had to empty them out a little bit? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... <laughs> And I say, you know, Lord, forgive me, that's not how you convert somebody. But that, when you say something like that, I just, I, I just couldn't believe it. She'd say, that's her defense. There were a lot of problems that had to be fixed. And Vatican II was meant to fix it. It destroyed it.
destroy it. Okay. Um, document 13 is about missionary activity in the church. This document basically says in the past, missionaries tried to, try to convert and baptize everyone, and those who were not were doomed to damnation. But now we're going to recognize these non-Christian religions, and we're not going to treat them as uh, objects to be uh, an object of conversion, as it were. Uh, there's going to be a new understanding here. Cultures are going to be respected, etc. It's more of the ecumenism, but it's a little more going specifically after missionaries in non-Christian countries is what they're going after. That we're no longer going to try to convert them. We're going to respect their cultures, right? Like John Paul II respected the voodoo witch doctors of the West Indies who he invited to Assisi. And they did their witchcraft, uh, praying for world peace or putting a curse on everybody who was there. Document 14, Decree on Priestly Life and the Ministry. This talks about basically how the parish priests um, are going to have to uh, change. Um, and uh, it is kind of late. I just wanted to finish this up here. Doc Declaration on Christian Education, the 15th document. Uh, basically about Catholic schools. In the past, he says, there was too much focus on truth instead of developing their minds. Whatever that means, right? And wasn't there a lot of focus on truth? Those of you who grew up in Catholic schools, right? You learned your times tables. You learned your catechism perfectly, right? <laughs> and now we're going to develop their minds. Now look what happened when we developed their minds, right? And so they're recommending a, a whole change in the attitude on the whole education, religious and academic education. And document 16 is the pastoral constitution on the church and the contemporary world. Uh, talking about basically wraps up everything that in the past the church has been outmoded, outdated. She has to change. She has to have a new view of the contemporary world. She has to make peace with the modern world. She has to get along with the modern world. And I wasn't, I didn't even read all the numbers on the voting. You know, there were a number of votes taken for all these documents. But if you look at some of these here, this is basically what they're all about. You look at uh, this document 16, 2,309 bishops voted for this document, only 75 against it. And I think we talked about this last time. One of the reasons was the bishops were given all this material and they really had no time to go through it. They had a few theologians who were trying to read with them and they would just vote it because it sounded good the way it was presented. Now, I know we kind of went through there quickly in the end there, but these are the 16 documents of Vatican II, and as I say, everything implicitly or explicitly is contained in these documents. So that Vatican II, Vatican II was the means by which they promoted everything that we're seeing today in the church that has been happening since Vatican II. Now, this is my last conference of the season. We're taking the summer off. 
Hey, come on. <laughs> We're taking the summer off so that we can prepare some super-duper conferences, right, in the fall. And what we're going to pick up with in the fall is we're going to start talking about uh, what happened in the wake of Vatican II. And in particular, I'm going to limit my, my comments to the Mass, the Episcopal uh, right of consecrating a bishop, and the ordination of a priest. The change is there. But with the holy sacrifice of the Mass, because I'm, I'm a very complete person here, we're not just going to jump right into the new Mass. I've got to give you the history of all the things that led up to the new mass, which we've kind of referenced already. 1950, 1955, 1957, 1960, 1962. All the changes, like in Holy Week and things, and we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at the new mass according to the Taviani intervention. And then we're going to look at the Episcopal rite of consecration and why we our opinion is that that Episcopal rite of consecration in the new church is doubtful to its validity. And therefore, it must be treated in the practical order as if it were invalid.